A girl has gone missing in the Scottish island of Summer Isle. Deeply religious and pure Sergeant Howie is on the case. And upon journeying to Summer Isle, he finds a hidden pocket of pagan worshipers that care nothing for the word of his God. More so, the inhabitants of Summer Isle seem determined to obstruct his search for the girl at every turn. Something is amiss, and Sergeant Howie will soon learn the true reason he was summoned here in the 1973 folk horror masterpiece, The Wicker Man. I'm Connor Izagari. I'm Caleb Zay. And I'm Josh Allred. And this is Filmgasm. Happy Wednesday and welcome to the Filmgasm podcast. Today I'm joined by Josh Allred and Caleb Bouget to dig into one of the greatest cult movies of all time, The Wicker Man. Josh's pick for our current movie cycle. Very excited to do this one. It's been on my radar since the podcast started. But before we get into it, I've got one update for the Rewind. As promised, more casting news for next year's Salem's Lot remake. Danish actor Pilo Asbeek has been cast as Richard Straker. Asbeek is known for his, pre- his brief role as pirate Euron Greyjoy in the final seasons of Game of Thrones. Thoughts? So I guess that means we kind of know who's going to be uh, Kurt Barlow then, huh? Yeah, the one guy who does not yet have a character. <laughs> and I'm okay with that. I think Sadler's a very interesting choice if, if it ends up being him. Um, yeah, I'm, I don't have... Aspek, I think, is a decent actor. I thought the character of Euron Greyjoy was fucking horrendous. But, you know, not his fault. So yeah, the casting of this, I, I liked him in Overlord. As a, I think he was, he was a bad guy, right? In Overlord, I, I don't remember Overlord. I saw that one time and thought this could have been better. I remember liking the movie and liking him, but I mean, I'm, I'm liking the cast so far. I'm excited for this new take on Salem's Lot. Um, well, yeah, he's stepping into the shoes of James Mason. And who, who played who played Striker in the, the remake in 04, the miniseries? Anybody Dude, remember? I saw, that when it, I saw it when it came out as a kid, and I don't remember. I know Rucker no Howard. I haven't Barlow. watched it. How have I not seen it if Rucker Howard is fucking Barlow? Holy shit. All right. Well, apparently he's fucking terrible at it. I've heard really bad things about this, but I don't know. Um, so, yeah, Pilo Asbeck is Striker, and it looked, and it's a good safe bet that William Sadler is going to play Barlow. Uh, so I look forward to talking about this next year. Uh, so Josh, why did you choose the wicker man? So I like to bring different things to the podcast. I like to kind of inject my personality. That's why I've, you know, came, came swinging out of the gates with the toxic Avenger and a lot of the more absurd uh, parts of, my love of, of genre and something else I've always been fascinated by just on a more personal note is like religion and people's beliefs and superstitions, things like that. And the first time I saw the wicker man, I was completely blown away by it. Mostly because I had never seen anything like it until I started to connect dots and realize that I had seen movies like this. I just didn't really know what to call them. And 
that is a subgenre known as folk horror. And a lot of people that are listening to this are probably going like, well, what is that? And if they do know, they're probably shouting, well, this movie, that movie. More modern examples are you're probably thinking about like The Witch. That's absolutely a folk horror movie where you're getting um, things of like themes of like paganism, witchcraft, um, and how they're kind of butting up against Christianity um, or, you know, more modern, quote unquote, modern beliefs and how they're threatened by these older religions and older concepts of worship that actually Christianity borrows heavily from and in most cases just outright steals and repurposes it to fit their own desires and needs, which kind of served as a way to attract people who believed in the pagan things in order to get them on their side in Christianity. With folk horror movies, you're getting a lot of that. And it's so broad that its interpretation can be in so many different forms. Um, Another modern one that a lot of people don't know about came from Ben Wheatley and it was called Kill List. And what I liked about that movie is that it kind of, it misdirects you in a way that you think you're watching one kind of movie. And then by the end of it, it just, it gets full blown folk horror and you're totally caught off guard by it. And I actually kept recommending that to an officer on the ship that Caleb and I were on together and we would be sitting out there and that's kind of something that you just trade stories with, you know, like, well, well what movies are you watching? Cause that's really all you have time for. And I kept telling him, I was like, sir, you need to watch this movie. You need to watch this movie. I've got it. You need to watch this movie. And I like to, I like to think I was going to blow his mind because he looked like the kind of person that had never seen something like this. So I, I was living more for his reaction. I wanted to see what, what he thought about it. And um, in a more popular example, um, Ari Aster's Midsummer, that it was his interpretation of the Wicker Man. And I, it's okay on its own. But when you're riding in the wake of the Wicker Man, it's not, it's not anything as, it's not as impactful for me as the Wicker Man was when I first watched it. And I think I even made a snide comment one time when somebody was talking about, oh, have you seen Midsummer? Like, no, I probably liked it better when it was called The Wicker Man. <laughs> and that was before I had even seen it. I'd only seen a trailer or two. And I was like, I know exactly where this movie's going. And, I, and after watching it, it was, it was all right. But Yeah, I saw Midsummer the day it came out. I remember um, Austin and I and a couple of his friends went to see it. And I had already had a bad day. And it was two and a half hours of just complete ripoff. And I'm sitting there thinking like this motherfucker, (laughs) I've seen this all before. This was done so much better. And then I left just kind of seething, like this is going to be a hit and nobody's going to fucking bring this up. And I was right. It was a hit. (laughs) And yeah, that was one of, that was a bitter episode. I'd like to redo that movie just because I was in a bad frame of mind when I saw that. But I do think that it, it does borrow, it steals from The Wicker Man. Um, this whole folk horror thing, I like, I like this um, exploring, you know, paganism and the, the uh, evils of religion. It's a very intriguing concept. Uh, I recently, on, on uh, Caleb's recommendation, watched The Ritual on Netflix, 
which is very much a, you know, exploration of old, like Druid beliefs and the power they have. It's, it's awesome. That stuff is so intriguing and it is endlessly, you know, there's, there's so much, so many possibilities for this. And they've been doing it since the seventies and even before then. But do you think the Wicker Man is kind of like the poster child for this genre? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's the one that gets cited the most. Um, in the case of folk horror, they have what is known as the unholy trinity. And that is the Wicker Man, Blood on Satan's Claw, and Witchfinder General. Those three are seen as being emblematic of what folk horror is. And on their own, they're very different films, but they also hit a lot of the same notes in the majority of folk horror films. Cause like I said, it's, it can be interpreted very broadly, which I think is quite interesting because when you have this framework that is very loose, you are allowing the people that want to work within it be as creative as they can be. And with Witchfinder general, that was almost a, straight historical movie and it's one of vincent price's most serious roles and at the time he was very much at odds with the director on what direction they were going he kept telling vincent to like tone it down to not get so campy and he vincent price was getting kind of upset because he wasn't sure what they were trying to do and only after he saw the finished film did he finally understand what the director was trying to do. And he actually came back and said, I apologize. I, I had no idea. And the director, I'm trying to think of his name right now. He actually sadly passed away shortly after that movie was made. And only after, you know, after that did Vincent Price actually see what, what the director was trying to do. And it's a, it's about this guy named Matthew Hopkins, who is tasked with finding witches. He ends up getting this title of the Witchfinder General. And he's relishing in this because he has like absolute power in this town. And he can do whatever he wants to whomever he wants. And he does. And it's, it's an extremely just upsetting movie. There's just so much that goes on. And um, you're shaking your head. So you've seen it. Yeah, I watched uh, Witchfinder General when um, Austin and I did uh, the, our Vincent Price episode on the Filmgasm podcast. That was one of the films we watched, and it was by far one of my favorites. That was such a dark and unsettling movie because of how real it was. I was very impressed with that movie. Yeah, so the director's name is Michael Reeves, and I knew it was I knew his first name was Michael. I just wasn't sure of his last name. But yeah, so he and Michael Reeves got into... They, they were just in disagreement about how Vincent should be playing it. And to his credit, Vincent Price's credit, he took the direction that the director was giving him and, and he did it. And I, I had seen that at a time where I was watching like Dr. Fives and a lot of these more like campier Vincent Price hamming it up kind of roles, theater of blood, madhouse. And so by the time I watched that, I was like, holy shit, like Vincent Price can play evil and play it like straight. And he was very, very scary. Um, Blood on Satan's Claw is, again, it's, it's about, you know, these kids that dig up a corpse and then strange things start happening. 
And from there, it just continues to get weirder and weirder. Strange stuff happens. Um, and it's one of those where, again, it's loosely setting up the tenets of what folk horror is. Wicker Man definitely kind of like, I, I, I would consider it, you know, like, like you said, like the poster child for folk horror movies. Um, least of all, because it has one of the most iconic images in film history, period. And like I, like I alluded to with my little clip, it's, it's just got so many moments in it where there's just these stark moments of just pure terror that you're just, you're, you're not expecting it. You're not expecting that movie the way it starts for it to end the way it ends. And it's, it's remarkably impressive and it's still impactful to this day for, for somebody that's seen so many things and been very, very jaded and desensitized. This movie still gets me every time, every time. Yeah, that's understandable. Uh, Caleb, what are your thoughts on, on folk horror? Is there anything you've gotten to kind of check out in that realm? Uh, I'm a little, I'm probably going to be off, off the three of us, the greenest on this one. I can admit that I'm like damn near virgin when it comes to folk horror. Um, most of it's been newer stuff like The Witch, which I really liked. Midsummer, which I'm in the same boat. I thought it was okay. And I hadn't seen The Wicked Man for that, so I didn't realize any ripping off at the time. I just remember being like really bored for two and a half hours. <laughs> yeah. um, but Going back and uh, seeing this one, because this was actually my first time I've ever seeing The Wicked Man. It's one of those I heard about all my life. I, here, here, I'm i going to say it. Here's the hot take. I've seen the the Cage remake before I saw this one. I'm not but, surprised. I was waiting for Trash's comment. <laughs> but when I saw this one on schedule, I was like, okay, I want to be on this episode because I've I finally want to watch this movie because I've heard about the Wickman. I'm super aware of its influence. I do like the few folklore I've seen and what folklore is. I'm really into, and I like the idea of it, especially um, that idea of what you were touching on with um, old school, almost like religion with Catholicism, stuff like that versus paganism uh, kind of clashing is always interesting to me. And I, yeah, I agree. I think this movie, I see why. I can definitely see why it's become a classic. I see why it's become the poster charge for this subgenre. It just does everything so, so well. Um, if I have time, I'm definitely going to be doing my best to see Rich Fighter General soon while it's on Shutter because I have got to see that because I'm super interested in that. Um, I'll see where Blood on Satan's Claws is that the title? I don't. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'll try to find that one. I'm sure it's on one of the sites somewhere. I'm just forgetting where. Tubi. Tubi? Okay, yeah. sweet. Um, and I'll check that out and definitely start going down this fun-filled rabbit hole. Nice. I I completely forgot. I think you told me this was your first time with the Wicker Man, and I just completely forgot. That's that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, so I hopped out in the episode. I was like, well, this is a good time as ever to finally watch this movie. Right on. Yeah, this was my... So, yeah. I was going to say, um, I'll, I'll, I'll interject on you guys. Um, one of the boutique labels... Uh, Severin is actually putting out a box set of folk horror movies mm. and I actually picked it up the the highlight of it though is a documentary about folk horror and that I think would be really good to pick up in general um, mostly because 
you get a really good sense of what folk horror is. And you get a lot of other examples from other countries. The title of it is Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched. And it just gives you kind of like a history of folk horror. Um, the box set is insane. It's got, I think, something like 20 movies, features and shorts. So you're getting a really good sampling of folk horror and stuff that came out way before, even before like Witchfinder General, which I think is the oldest of the three, because uh, that came out in 68. And there are some that are before that, that predated. I mean, there's like silent movies like Haxton. That's a folk horror movie. I've heard of that. Again, you've probably seen a lot more folk horror than you think you have, Caleb. It's just you didn't have the context for it. So, and I was while you uh, while you had a had a date with Rambo uh, and disappeared on us for a second. And, um, I was telling Connor that I just recently watched Pumpkinhead again, and Pumpkinhead, straight up folk horror movie. Um, Children of the Corn, folk horror movie. Oh, absolutely. So, a lot of a lot of movies that kind of have this so things where like an ice a community is isolated um very old religions sacrifices that kind of thing where and pumpkinhead is a is a different example but where basically like people are the evil not a monster or you know a, a supernatural slasher things like that basically where men are the ones that do the evil that is broad strokes what folk horror is so as i as i said earlier it's it's a big umbrella to put movies under at the same time how that's interpreted by different people in different places around the world there's a japanese movie called onibaba that is a folk horror movie so if you've seen that or you know of it you, you you are watching a full horror movie. Um, so again, having some kind of context for it, you've probably seen more than you think. Okay. Well, you know, and when you were talking about like the about a lot of that stuff at full core, like a lot of the descriptions and what it is, it actually reminded me of the show. I just finished it today. Um, Midnight Mass, Mike Flanagan's newest show on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And it it had so much of what you described in that show of folk horror elements it's an isolated community on this island weird shit's going on religion plays a huge part of it like a lot of elements are in that show i uh yeah i've heard i've heard good things about that mike flanagan's goddamn genius i will yeah highly when you guys have time highly recommend fantastic fucking show i keep thinking about this x-files episode uh from season eight it was called roadrunners uh you remember that one it was the this small town that traps scully and are gonna like feed her to this like slug god they worship oh yeah yeah yeah. and they like stitch it under her skin and dog it shows up and she's like get it out of me and it's like that's i think that that falls under the umbrella i think you know yeah like absolutely yeah (laughs) cool i love so i've been kind of seeing these things forever because i've been watching the x-files since i was like 12 and yeah cool i love influences yeah there's a um there's a couple of movies by ken russell one called the devils 
And that's based on the true events from, uh, it's basically kind of a story called like the devil in Ludon. And look that shit up. That's a fucking crazy ass story in and of itself. And it's all true. Um, Oliver Reed is one of the most amazing performances in a movie ever. It's he plays a, uh, plays a Catholic priest and, and he just goes for it. He ends up, so the guy that he plays was burned was burned for witchcraft. He was burned at the stake for being a witch or a wizard, what whatever you want to call him, a warlock, whatever. Um, and then there's another one called The Layer of the White Worm. And that is a straight up bananas ass fucking movie. Um, highly encourage you to watch that. And if you haven't seen it, get your eyeballs on it. It's fucking crazy. Um, but yeah, so like Ken Russell is really awesome for that. Um, and again, there's just so much of it out there that like, and if you don't have the definition for it, you don't really know what you've seen other than it's a really fucking horrific movie. So. Yeah, that's true. I'm looking at the devil. I'm looking up the devils right now. That sounds very up my alley. Uh, the devils of Lou Dunn. I'm going to try to track that book down. I love true crime and true accounts of just evil shit. This is a, uh, yeah, I'll definitely be uh, bookmarking this shit. Yeah, that movie got banned in Britain because it was considered so blasphemous. And when you, when, because I watched a documentary with Ken Russell talking about it, and he's like this really quaint, nice looking grandpa looking guy when they're doing the interview for him. And that movie has some of the wildest shit I have ever seen in, in a fucking movie. Like, uh, Vanessa Redgrave plays one of the nuns in it, and she's obsessed with um, Oliver Reed's character, like to where she's having like impure thoughts about him. And after he gets burned alive, one of the the uh, the guy that's working for um, the king goes in to where where she's at and drops off one of his charred bones and the scene that gets cut out of it is her rubbing one out with his fucking burned ass bone. Like not even kidding. Like it's just, and that's like, and that's just like the tip of the iceberg of the fucked up shit that happens in this movie. So yes, if you can, and I will, and I will throw a plug cause he's, they, they've had it before and I don't know if they have it right now, but my buddy Ty has, um, and I got it when he said they had it, but they have the actual like X rated, cut of that movie on dvd and i bought it it's worth it so orbitdvd.com if you look it up look for the devils and look for the x-rated cut it's worth it that's that's good to hear um i just threw this in the book so it will come up eventually um unless you know it ends up getting picked by one of us which it very well might this sounds fucking awesome I'll say I'm about to move in with you, so I'll just watch your copy when I move in. <laughs> Same with that set you said you got. Sounds like I got some good stuff to watch when I come over. Oh, uh, yeah. Very nice. So, glad we got a little crash course in folk horror there. Uh, definitely a, a subgenre worth talking about, worth going back to. Uh, yeah, very good stuff. The Wicker Man was loosely based on the novel Ritual by David Pinner, first published in 1967. You guys ever get a chance to read this book? 
No, it's extremely hard to find. And Uh, if you do find it, you're paying out the ass for it. However, um, something that I'm going to be referencing a lot while we're going through this episode is an article that was written um, specifically about the Wicker Man and his production, like the entire history of it, the genesis of the idea, the, the screenplay, the music, Christopher Lee's portrayal as Lord Summer Isle, including a great quote that I'm going to read from the man himself about it. Uh, it just goes through everything. Literally, the, the events in the book, and I, and I don't really know much about the book, it's extremely loose. Like it, it, it could almost be just like in name only did they reference that book because a lot of the ideas that they had were from Robin Hardy and from um, his name's Paul Schaefer. I want to say, hold on. Yeah, I think so. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, um, Anthony Schaefer. Anthony Schaefer, yes. Yeah. Paul Schaefer's the door. weird dude from Late Show. Yeah, 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 yeah. Ha-ha! Yeah. <laughs> that fucking asshole. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so um, Anthony Schaefer, they kind of collaborated on the idea for what the Wicker Man was going to be about. Um, and a lot of it came from Anthony Schaefer himself, who said that he wanted to kind of package a mystery. Fun fact, Anthony Schaefer also wrote the script for one of Alfred Hitchcock's more savage movies, Frenzy. So think about that. I didn't even realize that until I was going through this. I was like, holy shit, he wrote Frenzy? Well, fuck. Okay. So they they collaborated a lot on that. And they had taken a lot of um, examples from things that they had seen, stuff and some research that they had done on like just ancient religions and pagan rituals and things like that so yeah that was kind of what they used what they used that on well i'm bummed to find out the books out of print or hard to find i really wanted to get a hold of that uh but it was a good jumping off point and you know they did kind of piece together a pagan narrative from ideas they had outside of that i know the wicker man himself or itself came from some weird imagery they discovered and it fits. Uh, yeah, I was. I didn't know it was. It was a. Its origins could be traced back to a novel, uh, but that's cool. Just uh, keep checking out price books, man. That seems to be the place to find books you can't find anywhere else. I am constantly looking. I get lucky sometimes. I'll I'll put it on the list. <laughs> uh, the movie was directed by Robin Hardy, who only directed two other movies: 1986's The Fantasist and 2011's The Wicker Tree, a spiritual sequel to The Wicker Man. Uh, Hardy died in 2016 at 86 years old. And I wonder why, you know, I I mean, initially this wasn't a huge financial success, but eventually this, you know, the the cult fervor, I'm surprised it never led him to, you know, have kind of a resurgence, like he never did anything else. Um, I think think some of that had to do with the fact that... um, the company that helped fund the movie British lion, they were like getting passed around a lot. Like you have getting bought out and this film that a lot of people tried to bury this film. They didn't want it to come out. I think one of the, one of the producers for it was just like, there's no way that they're getting, there's no way so much so that the, 
other footage that had been cut out that was supposed to be like actually like Robin Hardy's actual like quote unquote director's cut of it mm-hmm. lost. Nobody knows where it's at. If it's even been there, there there's rumors that it was burned and just destroyed completely. Um, the Blu-ray that's out right now is called the final print or some of the final cut or something like that. Yeah. So it's like the most complete version of the film that may ever exist. Unless somebody has got it hiding around somewhere. That's the, that's the one I watched the, the final print. Uh, that's fucking, you know, God forbid you blaspheme. <laughs> it's, it's fucking ridiculous, man. I've so much gets lost because of these, you know, ancient barbaric, you know, commandments that people just devote their entire existence to. And they try their hardest to destroy anything that threatens that worldview. I, it's disgusting. We lose so much art because of this bullshit. But old barbaric views. And then as we're seeing today, a lot of political stuff bleeding into those religious yeah. views happening big time. Yeah. And because of that, you know, we lose director's cuts of the wicker man, which I hope one day, you know, some, work print copy or some shit is discovered in a barn in fucking Sheffield somewhere. Some random dude who was like the PA has it just under the mattress of his couch for no reason. It happens. They keep finding, you know, like especially, um, I'm a big Doctor Who fan and uh, there's like a hundred episodes of like 60s, 70s Doctor Who that is just lost to time because the BBC kept taping over the old episodes because they never thought to save any of this stuff. So Occasionally, some guy who worked at BBC in the 70s will have like a, you know, old tape that still has a a lost Doctor Who and they'll be able to restore it. And apparently BBC gives anybody who finds an old Doctor Who a full size Dalek, (laughs) which is pretty cool. But yeah, just it's it's weird that, you know, back then nobody thought to preserve this stuff. I mean, I mean, human beings are very like we're very short sighted. You know, we don't too far into the future so it's not like anyone saw the 80s coming with the boom of the home video market that happened and being able to keep movies around forever it's just like well we want to watch it it's gonna leave theaters and it's gone forever you know what i mean like isn't that crazy back in the day like if you went to see casablanca you saw it at the movies and then you it just disappeared from your life you never saw it again (laughs) that's crazy to me man like oh i I could never function back then like i need immediate access to every movie ever made or i'm not going to be able to go through my day to day (laughs) or have sneak preview be how it is sometimes yeah that's that's (laughs) if if we still had to deal with you know one time at the movies and gone forever i don't know how we do the sneak preview we'd forget things and never be able to find out if we were right or wrong or somebody some character's name that's escaped us it's just gone I don't like that. Lost, lost in the sands of time. Yeah. Um, Edward Woodward stars as Sergeant Howie. Woodward was known for his role as Robert McCall on the TV series The Equalizer, which he got because of this movie. Some American producer's wife saw The Wicker Man and thought he'd be good as The Equalizer. Uh, he was also the lead role on the t- 70s TV series Callan, which is what got him The Wicker Man. He also played Tom Weaver, head of the Neighborhood Watch in 2007's Hot Fuzz, which I always loved because in that one, he's part of the crazy cult. (laughs) One of my all-time favorite lines in movie history. 
if we don't come down hard on these clowns, we're going to be up to our balls and jugglers. <laughs> Thank you, Edward Woodward. He died in 2009 at 79 years old from pneumonia. And he is so, so good in this. I, I can't picture anyone else playing the Puritan, you know, devout, virginal Sergeant Howie, God's crusader of England. Because no one else can. And when they tried it, we saw how that ended up. Save that for the other show. <laughs> but um, yeah, you know, it's funny because watching it and like my own upbringing, it's kind of like t- scary for me in a way because I'm watching this like really devout dude that's just like, I won't have sex before marriage. And that's just so ungodly. How dare you teach them this in school? And it's like, oh my God, dude, like, kid with the times, it's okay. It's okay to have some fun, man. I know. You, you take the human sacrifice out. Who's the real bad guy of this movie? <laughs> well, that's the thing. That's one of the things about this movie that the more you watch it, you, you find yourself taking a different stance. Yeah. So, like, the first time I watched it, I was really just soaking in everything that was playing out in front of me. And I was kind of with Sergeant Howie in like, in that you're getting introduced to this distinctly odd world, you know, Summer Isle and, and the, the people that live there, the things that they do, all of it is just so foreign because it's so far removed from quote unquote civilization and how they live their lives when you get down to it. And, and it's, even, it's even put so, so succinctly by Lord Summerisle when he and Howie first meet and he's talking about how he had seen these girls frolicking naked and jumping over a fire. And he's like, well, do you expect them to jump over a fire with clothes? Like, you know, just that practicality of what he's saying is like, why would you want them to wear clothes and jump over fire? That's stupid. And and how he's completely baffled by it. he's so upset by seeing a naked girl than he is to just think about how dumb it would be if they were in clothes trying to jump over a fire like they fucking burn alive. Like, what the hell is your problem? Like, that's stupid. And the more you watch it, the more you start to understand that Howie is like the intruder there. Yeah. And he is the entire time. He's so he's so unbearably like proud in his religion in his faith that he is using it like a like a like a fucking weapon in asserting his presence there and demanding that all these people you know bow down to his authority and everybody's looking at him like he's an idiot like what like you don't you're not the law here man like we don't have to pay we don't have to do anything you say like what are you talking about do you have his lordship's permission? You know, they kept asking him that at every turn. And he's like, what? I don't need, how dare you I don't need anybody's permission? I'm the law. And he just keeps going. And he's so arrogant that by the end of it, I was kind of like waiting for something bad to happen to him. Cause he just keeps pushing buttons the entire time. He's there just pushing yeah. buttons, pushing buttons. And he's given every chance, every chance. They keep telling him you should probably leave soon. You don't want to be here on this day. This is not for you. You should go home. Doesn't care. He's there to find the truth. Boy, does he get it. (laughs) I love how this film is bookended by Howie's religion and their religion. It opens with Howie in in a Catholic church 
receiving the sacrament, and it ends with him burning alive as part of a pagan ritual. And it makes you think, like, objectively, both religions are completely insane. If you know nothing about either of these worlds and you are introduced to both of them at the same time, which one's going to seem crazier? And it kind of plays with that a little. You know, to them, the idea of Jesus Christ and resurrection is laughable. And they tell him that all the time. And he just looks at them like, how, how dare you? Like, you don't have Jesus in your life. How are you functioning? And they're like, we're functioning just fine. Like, how are you functioning without, like, love and life? <laughs> it's, it's actually quite smart. It's, it's really cool how they do that. Especially in 73. Like, the shit, that, like, you didn't talk about that shit. Especially in England, you know, how crazy God was. The whole concept of religion just being nuts. And I, I love that. I know I put it on my notes. I point out, like, because it came out saying it's almost timely with, like, the counterculture movement and the sexual revolution happening at the time. And when people were really starting to question, the younger generation was really starting to question religion a yeah, lot yeah. more than they had in the past versus the more traditional parents. And it, you can really see the parallels in the, in the movie. I don't know if it was, I doubt it was intentional, but something like I picked up on just kind of watching it. Um, that that i really noticed that and also like talking about like what you said with religion it does such a good job showing you like you know for people that are religious there's a fine line right you have those who are perfectly sane people they're it's just a part of their lives they don't really bother anyone they do their thing and they're fine yeah you know but then you have those people that just they take it that one step further to the point that it's like even if let's say yours in your eyes is better because you're going so far with it it's ultimately becoming the same. You're ultimately yeah. just as crazy as the other nutbag in that religion. Yeah. At what point does a religion become a cult? At what point does it become extremism? And you could argue Howie is approaching that fervor. Uh, yeah, it's there's a lot to unpack with this movie. A lot of different avenues you can take. A lot of ins, a lot of outs, a lot of what have yous, as the dude would say. Uh yeah, for sure. Fascinating stuff. <laughs> um, Sir Christopher Lee plays Lord Summerisle, head of the cult. Lee is one of the most respected and iconic actors of all time, with a career spanning eight decades. His cousin, Ian Fleming, used him as part of the basis for the character of James Bond, which is pretty fucking amazing. He was a legit MI6 agent who, who did assassinations for the crown during World War II. <laughs> yeah. There's a, a scene in, in Lord of the Rings, uh, Return of the King, Saruman's death. This kind of famous story, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Uh, Saruman gets stabbed in the back. And Peter Jackson had, what, told Christopher Lee, Christopher Lee to like scream and do this. And Lee told Jackson... Mr. Director, I know what a man sounds like when he is stabbed in the back. <laughs> and what he does is that, you know, oh, a kind of gasp of air. And Lee said, like, yeah, that's what it sounds like when you stab a man in the back. I fucking love that. It's awesome. There's very few, like, to me, like, true badasses of, like, cinema. Like, they just had that kind of rotation around them. Christopher Lee and, like, Sean Connery are always the first two that come to mind. Like, they're just dudes that, like, they were great fucking actors, iconic but do not fuck with them. Oh, I'm pretty sure on his deathbed, you know, 90 something year old Sean Connery could have killed me with one punch. <laughs> yeah, um, probably could have. Lee was the only um, 
member of the Lord of the Rings cast to meet J.R.R. Tolkien. He got his permission uh, if they ever made a movie to play Gandalf the Grey. And then Peter Jackson said, strike me as more of a Saruman. <laughs> and it worked, you know, it worked out. Um, the man was a force of nature. He got his start in horror films such as The Curse of Frankenstein, The Devil Rides Out, Horror of Dracula, and all its sequels. He was very big in the Hammer horror films. He played the million-dollar assassin Francisco Scaramanga in the Bond film The Man with the Golden Gun. He played Count Dooku in the Star Wars prequels and Saruman the White in the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit trilogies. He considered The Wicker Man to be one of his best films, if not his best. He was in a heavy metal band up until the day he died at 93 years old in 2015 from heart failure. This dude lived a fucking life. <laughs> totally. I, Absolutely. Um, I was going down like a rabbit hole of a bunch of stuff about Wicker Man when I started doing my homework for this. And I found an interview with Christopher Lee at a film festival. And somebody asked him about the Wicker Man and flat out first response. "It's It's a damn good film. And the fact that the man himself says that, and there's a couple of other like quotes about this thing. Like he says, it's nobody could have written a, a, a better script than, than this. Um, and it's unquestionably the best part he's ever had for a guy that's been Dracula, no less than like seven times. I think the fact that he, for, for me has probably played like the definitive Dracula in any movie ever um, <clears throat> for him to say that speaks volumes i think it says everything you need to know about this movie that's awesome yeah i love that he like he never forgot his roots he always respected horror he loved doing horror movies and even you know in the later half of his career he became you know blockbuster like even you know a blockbuster staple star wars lord of the rings all you know tim burton stuff he was sleepy hollow charlie and the chocolate factory corpse bride like he just kept working and he fucking rocked. I, he was one of my favorite guys. And I've really only barely tapped into his, uh, his, hor- his hammer run. I watched Horror of Dracula. I thought it was, wasn't bad. I thought he was fantastic. And I want to watch all of his Dracula sequels. Uh, yeah, fucking Christopher Lee. Rock and peace. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I, I knew him first because of Lord of the Rings and Star Wars. Like, I saw those as a kid and was like, I like this guy. And yeah, I started going down the rabbit hole of like, what else has he been in? As I got more into horror and realized like his importance, his legacy, his relevance to the genre. Yeah. Goddamn rock star. No, I mean, the guy has a guy shares a birthday with Vincent Price. So, I mean, and Peter Cushing, his birthday is like a day or two after theirs, I think something like that. So all three of them have birthdays right around the same time. And <laughs> Look it up. There's a uh, there's a clip on YouTube where they're doing kind of like a this is your life type bit. And it's for Christopher Lee's birthday. And Vincent Price comes out and roasts him. And it's so funny. So funny. But you can tell it's done with like genuine love. Like the the guy that's hosting the show is saying, you know, like we got this guy to come here. He flew over 8000 miles to be here, blah, blah, blah. And as soon as Christopher Lee sees Vincent Price walk out. He gets like this stupid little kid smile on his face. Like he's like, Oh my God, this is my friend. 
and they get up and they embrace. And it's just, it's such a wonderful little moment. And the, like these guys were consummate professionals, some of the best actors that have ever been in movies. And you, for me, especially, these were the guys that I grew up watching with my mom. It was Vincent Price, Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing. All of these guys were like my foundation for watching horror movies. So seeing something like this, it kind of gives me that connection with my mom. And I appreciate that. So I, I always encourage people to, if, if they liked somebody, especially an older actor, it's like, okay, you like this. I want you to go back and see them in their prime and see why over 30 or 40 years in most cases after like later that people are still going for these people. You, you understand why Christopher Lee was still doing voiceover work and why up until his death, Vincent Price was getting roles that he was getting is because the people that were making these films respected and admired the work that they had done, you know, 30 years ago. And I mean, this more than anything else is probably for me, one of my, my favorite Christopher Lee performances. That's great, man. I love that you have such a personal investment in films like this. It's awesome. The passion really comes across and yeah, this is Christopher Lee as the perfect, I don't really want to say villain because he's, he's so charming and he's so like, they love him. He's trying to help, you know, the harvest, but he is killing this guy. It's it's such a complex role, and he pulled it off so great and for free. I love that. He was he believed in this so much. He didn't take a salary. That's fucking fantastic. Well, not only that, like this role was written for him. <laughs> Anthony Schaefer and Robin Hardy had him in mind specifically, and when they envisioned Lord Summerall, that it was Christopher Lee. So. Um, I'll go ahead and I'll read this. This is a straight quote from Christopher Lee talking about his character of Lord Summerisle. And he says, the character appealed to me because it was so well-written. And I know that Tony had me in mind when he wrote it. He knows me in my career. You can say that Summerisle is an amalgam of many roles I have played on screen. Figures of power, of mystery, of authority, of presence. There's quite a lot of my natural delivery in the way Summerisle's dialogue was written. My delivery of the lines in the film is exactly how I speak. In fact, the three of us, Tony, Robin, and I, are apt to talk in similar ways. So there's probably a bit of all three of us in there. I've been called upon to play acceptably straight characters, agreeable, courteous, amusing. Add to that the the suggestion that the character is not quite what he seems, and I've played them many times. Also in the changes of mood, The fact that Summer Isle is dangerous when crossed perfectly applies to me. Christopher Lee does not forget a wrong done to him, so I'm dangerous when crossed too. That's not a very Christian attitude, perhaps, but it's a very human one. God damn, eloquent as fuck. God, I wish I could talk off the cuff like that. Oh my God. Christopher Lee. And then refer to yourself in the third person. How about that shit? He's like, Christopher Lee does not forget when he is wrong. It's like, woo, damn. I, I believe that. Like, I've, you know, I've, I've, I've read up on what this guy was capable of, what he did in life. And yeah, if, I believe that he, like, he holds a grudge. He will hunt you down. I believe that. <laughs> That's fantastic. I, I love how, how much of himself was 
was into this character and just the way he talks is so refined, so civilized, so cultured, so British. Plus he's very like classy British, which I just I love. I love that that uh cadence, that style of like voice that a lot of these guys have. Yeah, it's it's amazing. It's the way they talk, a lot of them, not all of them, there's some dunces like there are in every culture. But I mean, most yeah, of them... the cockneys involved, then it's a little different. <laughs> I didn't want to say anything, but yeah. Uh I'll go there. <laughs> it is a, a certain, you know, a certain class. Is it's 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 beautiful. I could listen to Christopher Lee talk all day. Oh um last actor I want to talk about is uh Britt Eklund, who plays Willa McGregor, the innkeeper's daughter. Um, Eklund played the Bond girl Mary Goodnight in The Man with the Golden Gun alongside Christopher Lee and also appeared in Get Carter and Machine Gun McCain. And uh, she was with, um, she slept with Rod Stewart. She was like, she 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 had her share of famous boyfriends in the 70s. Proud of her. Yeah. And she is drop dead gorgeous. Um, I'll say she's not, not going to lie. I said it. I think I, uh, Josh pointed out that I, I did that last. He did. Time. He did. I listened to episode in the car. I just sent a text. I was going to wait for this episode to say something. <laughs> I was biding my time. Damn it. <laughs> That's. I love that. Um, she was dubbed over in this movie because she has a um, a pretty thick Swedish accent. Uh, and also body double. It's not her dancing around naked. Oh, That's disappointing. Yeah. Well, she was pretty- only from behind. And then yeah. a lot of the shots of her are mostly from about midway up because she was around three months pregnant at the time. And it was more, she felt like she didn't want to give that appearance, but the way it was described is that she had a more fuller figure than, than, you know, what she normally had. And on top of that, guess who did not want this movie coming out because of it? I wonder. Rod fucking Stewart. Really? Yeah. Because his girlfriend. If you want my body and you think I'm sexy, didn't want this movie coming out because his girl, Britt Eklund at the time, was in it. Not even her naked shaking her booty because she showed her tatas. He he did not want this movie coming out. Even though the guy was known to like sleep around and cheat on his girlfriends and wives. But he doesn't want an audience to just look at that for like five seconds and move on with their lives. Hypocrite much. Isn't he the guy who has the urban legend where he got rolled into a hospital and they've had to pump his stomach of like so much jizz? Uh, I don't know. I've never heard that urban legend, but I've, I've heard that. That. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to look that up before I have to cut that out because I'm fairly certain that well, that I do know there's a great joke in a tenacious D short called rockstar sperm where they decide to, uh, to sell their sperm like at a fucking lemonade stand on the side of their, on the fucking corner. And this old busted ass roadie looking dude comes walking by and he's like, Oh, cool. And he, <laughs> he buys the little cup of jizz from him. And he was like, Oh, it's like, so, so what are you going to do? He's like, oh, you like 
downs it and the guys are like what the fuck and he goes oh it's real good helps coat your throat so you can sing real good like rod stewart <laughs> so maybe maybe there is some truth to your urban legend i don't know but tenacious d were definitely pulling from that well in some regard so uh, i found the story <laughs> it's an urban legend rod stewart's addressed it since the 80s the rumor is that he was wheeled into a hospital. They pumped his stomach after he allegedly blew a bunch of sailors and they had to pump his stomach of the result. Uh, of course, he says it's made up. Who would, who would own up to something like that? His reaction, he told Katie Couric, quote, I'm as heterosexual as they come. Anyone who says that is not. Look, I don't believe that. I, I forgot what the fuck I was watching, but it was talking about like the whole like, you know, David Bowie's wife found him and Mick Jagger in bed one morning after a party. And one of the rock stars was talking about like, man, you do cocaine, you fuck any hole that comes your way. You don't know if it's male or female. <laughs> I'm like, yep, that kind of confirms that. I think some of our favorite rock stars, guys, back in the day, if they were drugged up enough, they, they fuck some dudes. They just don't want to admit it. Why not fucking own it? It's, you know, as Kirk Lazarus once said, everyone's gay once in a while. It's Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. God. All right. Well, anyway, you know, I don't like that Rod Stewart tried to get this movie banned because his girlfriend was naked in it. So I'm going to continue to perpetuate the Jismith. I don't like that and the fact that he just won't admit that he blew 100 dudes. Like, Rod, I won't judge you for what you did a little bit. His name's Rod. What do you expect? <laughs> you can't. Like, what you do with your mouth and your time, that's on you. <laughs> yeah, it was on him. It was in him all day. Yeah. <laughs> all right. I think I'm done talking about Rod Stewart and Jizz. Uh Brit Eklund's hot. That's my point. No, yeah, she's and not. I don't lie. How we should have hit okay. that. Yeah, how was. Oh, God. I got mad when he's like, when she came in the room next to me, she's like, I thought you'd come over. He's like, no, I, I fiercely believe in waiting until you're married. I was like, you're a dumbass. I would have been over there in a heartbeat. I'm not going to say she would have been happy. Like, it'd be probably very mediocre disappointing at best, but, you know, I would have done what needs to get done and then gone back to bed. Well, but I mean, even that whole scene, like he's struggling, he's struggling the entire time. And the way it's happening, it's almost like it kind of almost plays like she's casting some kind of spell on him because the music from the pub kind of carries up through to his room. And then with her doing her dance and like the way she's pounding on the wall, it's in rhythm with the music. And all of this is just working him over and he doesn't have any kind of frame of reference for this kind of thing. So not only is he struggling with his own, you know, his own human desires, which a lot of, you know, the people here on this Island have no qualms about because they accept that they are, they, they are human beings. They have these desires and that's what they do. They act on them. You know, it, it's not anything to be ashamed of. And he is very ashamed of that because he feels like he has to do you know, he has to hold himself to this higher standard. Like that makes him a holier person. But the entire time he is so like, if, if this movie would have gone farther, it probably would have shown him like coming in his pants or some shit. I don't know. But like, 
that was how far it was going to go. And she was genuinely like surprised that it didn't work. And I think it's all in service to them steadily like testing him and seeing at what point is he going to cave in? And he never does to his detriment. Yeah. If he just banged Britt Eklund, he'd still be alive. Yeah. I, for some reason, I just had that image from Step Brothers when Rofero busts through the the therapist door and his like fantasy sequence. I just had the image of the guy doing that, just giving into his eyes, just busting that door. I'm like, I am here to plant my seed in you. <laughs> oh, great movie. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's uh, it's unfortunate, but it is a it's a it's a fairly memorable scene. Um, <laughs> Oh, oh, and I'll and I'll and I'll go ahead and take this moment to uh, insert a little tidbit of trivia for you, courtesy of my friend Ty. And he says this is the only time in a horror movie that not getting laid gets you killed. (laughs) Yeah, that's I I think that's true. (laughs) Yeah, I never thought about that too far in that house. That's that's awesome. I love that. I say bring on the hedonism. Let's just do it. Yeah. I you know, if if you're if you're gonna be a sacrifice anyway, enjoy those last few days. Might as well die with a smile on your face. That's all I gotta say. Yeah, absolutely. God knows he didn't. Everyone else, though, smiles all around. It's so unnerving. No, he <laughs> he died without ever being able to know what the touch of a woman feels like. That's how he died. But at least he gets to go to heaven like a good Englishman, like a God-fearing yeah. Catholic. Yeah, but he's not Muslim, so it's not like 72 virgins waiting for him. I know, but the moral high ground belongs to him. God damn it. He's up there having tea with God and being super uptight about it. Oh. Um, the Wicker Man has an IMDb score of 7.5, Rotten Tomatoes score of 88%. It didn't do too hot financially, grossing only about 162,000 on a budget of about 810,000, uh, adjusted for you know British pounds. Hard to nail down an exact number, uh, regards to, to the budget and the box office release, but it didn't do well. Um, but it's since been reclaimed as one of the greatest horror films of the 20th century. Uh, it was remade in 2006 and Hardy directed a spiritual sequel in 2011. Uh, so this film's legacy speaks for itself at this point. So according to Robin Hardy, the movie cost about 750 grand. Okay. And that's, and that's, and that's, I'm going to say pounds sterling. Um, even though um, they were trying to budget it to be quite a bit more expensive. Um a lot of the, uh, the the means of the production were in stark contrast to what they were trying to capture. So this should have taken place in May, like during the spring and all that stuff. However, the way productions were done, a lot of this was shot towards the wintertime. And so a lot of the flowers and a lot of the things you see on the trees and stuff, it's all artificial. They literally like glued that shit on there just to create the image of a lush island paradise however the palm trees in the location that they used as the castle those were actually there by virtue of the 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 volcanic soil and how it and the and the gulf stream that 
brought the water through there. So that was an actual thing. Like, albeit it looks extremely strange to be in that part of the world. It's a naturally occurring phenomena. That's cool. I find it interesting that they, you know, bothered to ship in, you know, foliage considering that the crops were supposed to have failed. Like the following year, this isn't supposed to be kind of a barren place. Well, the apples, like that was what they were known for. And that region is actually known for its apples, even though it's like a complete anomaly that anything would even grow in that area. But they were known that that particular spot or at least fictionally where it's supposed to happen is supposed to be like known for its apples. So, yeah, that was a that was a true thing. We all got to make a trip to the Scottish Isle that they filmed this on and have an apple. <laughs> I'd do it. I don't. I don't like to eat apples, but I would totally do that just to say I had one. Yeah, that's. Ah, I would love to. Yeah, I'd love to check this place out. It looks beautiful. Um, I mean, no one. You know, there's no cult, but it is a nice place that we know of. No, so like the um the pieces of the Wicker Man, it, like where they burned that they stuck around for a while the stumps stuck around for a while uh they, they don't exist anymore but they they were there for quite a while that's awesome uh, so let's bring up some highlights uh moments of this movie things you like about it things you don't like about it whoever wants the floor has it um i think what's really interesting about this is the way that the the thing that Howie is trying to find the the like Rowan is essentially a MacGuffin. Like it's not it's not an actual thing that he's going to find. Even though he he does find her, but he doesn't find what he's looking for. He's expecting to find out why this girl has gone missing, and <coughs> she was never missing to begin with. It's all like he is he has manipulated the entire time from the moment he steps foot on that island until he, well, we all know he doesn't leave, but by the end of it, it is revealed why and what happens. And I think it's just like the like the 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 more I watch this movie, the more I start to just resent him and his character and and what he represents. Because I think when I when, when I think of Sergeant Howie, I think of anybody who is so arrogant in their belief that they have a contempt and disdain for anyone who doesn't live the way that they live and sees them as less than and yeah. as stupid somehow. At the same time, everything is all based on a matter of perspective. To these people, he's a he's an idiot, and he is the strange one. And why are you here? Like you don't belong here. You shouldn't be here. And instead he's asserting himself as being the law. You know, I am the one authority that you should all be respecting. And I'm like, no, dude, you're, you're, you're a joke to all of us. How many people do you see in this movie that look at him and none of them are scared of him? None of them. In fact, they kind of feel bad for him and they see him as an idiot the fool that he winds up playing at the end of it. And it's just, it's so great that like, and I, and I, I never really noticed it until I started reading this article 
like the only time he is not in his uniform, he is in his bed. And at the end, when he takes um, the full costume on every other time, he is straight up in his policeman's uniform, asserting himself as this like law figure, this authoritative force that has to be obeyed. I just find that incredibly like for me, it's incredibly infuriating because I just hate, I, well, I don't want to say hates very strong word, but people like that just drive me up the wall. They get me so upset because it's just like how, like what makes you think that you're so right? What makes you think that you have all the answers? Cause if anything, somebody tells me they have the answers to everything. I'm pretty sure they're full of shit. Yeah. I'll say it. I, I hate those people straight up. I hate anybody who claims they have all the answers and anyone who tries to tell you that they know better than you do. They're the worst. I hate people who enforce their beliefs upon other people. And I didn't expect to, you know, feel a little contempt towards Howie when I watched this. Uh, when you're the only guy who's not a pagan on the island of pagans, you, you got to stop acting like an asshole. <laughs> it's no one is there is going to back you up. No one's going to help you. Everyone there wants to see you fall, fail, like everybody there. And how he just, it never even occurs to him that these pagans could be a threat to him, to his God, to his way of life, because he is so right. God is on his side. How could he let anything like that happen to him? It's bonkers. And I also love that for most of this film's run, it's a folky musical. It's not really a horror movie until the last 20 minutes. Well, and that's totally deliberate. I mean, even with the music, it's it's done in a way to, as a viewer, like catch you off guard. I mean, you're you're seeing these people enjoy themselves when he first arrived and they're kind of like putting on a show for Howie when they're doing the uh, the, the sing along, the landlord's daughter, which is a great thing. Like and that's something that is very, very typical for small pub like events like that's what that's what people do like that the the sing-along culture and the way that people tell stories and share stories and things like that it's very it's a very english and british thing that happens and for him he's totally offended by the content of that song even though it is it is exactly the kind of humor that you get from 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 british people like just on that cusp of being totally lewd and gross, but just a twist of the word, just to just to make it just, ah, you thought I was going to say that, but I didn't, you know? And it's just bringing you to that point every time and then just turning it around. But he is so upset by all of that. And I, like, as I've watched it more, and I keep saying that, but like, as I watch it more, like, I really enjoy this community of people because they are so, they are so, accepting of what 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 their beliefs are who they are and how they want to live their lives and they're okay with that you know they they don't try and assume that they're better than anybody they this is what works for them and this is why they've chose to sequester themselves from everybody else and that's why they've isolated themselves even though when Summer Isle and Howie are having their little walk and talk and Summer Isle's giving them the history of the island. You find out that Summer Isle kind of has a two, like almost like a, this duplicitous approach to how he runs things. Like his family, his grandfather that started the island 
did so because he wanted to experiment with fruits and plants and farming and things like that. And the people there were kind of treated like an experiment as well. And how he started to more or less create their reliance on these rituals and these beliefs that the old gods, as he said, were responsible for helping them, even though for his grandfather, he was seeing it completely in another context. And I thought that was a very interesting point. And I never noticed it for the longest time until I watched it recently. And I heard him say that. And the way he phrased it, he was almost like, like he didn't fully believe in the pagan side of things. He believed it in as much as it kept him in power. And it was his way of controlling people. And he would completely like throw himself into it, into the ritual, because at the end of it, he's literally like dressed up in a terrible share wig and like painted up to look like some kind of lady. And he's dancing around orchestrating this whole march to, to serve his own end, to make sure that how he gets to where he wants him to and do the thing that he needs to have done, which is sacrifice him to make sure that their crops are going to be bountiful this year. Yeah, it's there's a lot of underhanded shit going on here, and it takes a couple viewings to really find it. The first time I watched this was on a very cheap DVD that didn't have subtitles. I watch everything with subtitles because odds are if I'm watching a movie, I'm probably eating chips as well. And I want to I want to hear the dialogue. So when I watched it this time, it was a crisp, nice Blu-ray with subtitles. And I was getting all of this information that I didn't get the first time. And it's really cool. There's so much happening around this movie that is leading you in one direction. And then it just pulls the fucking rug out from under you. And now it's this movie. I love when that happens. I love when a movie can fuck you up like that. And the Wicker Man did it. And it, it has no Hollywood ending. It has no happy ending. It ends with the hero getting burned alive. That's while the entire community sings like the fucking who's of Whoville, just with a big smile on their face. It's, it's fantastic. Ah, good stuff. Uh, Caleb, what do you, uh, what do you take away from the Wicker Man? Um, you know, I, Anyway, you know, Josh has always kind of mentioned this to me and on the podcast for like movies I haven't seen for all the the fun shit he loves to give me when I always say like, hey, I haven't seen that yet. You know, ultimately I watch it and he's like, you know what? It At least you got here. Whatever you say, that little quote. And, you know, same here. You know, I know I I knew when I was going to be like, yeah, I haven't seen this yet except for the podcast. I knew Josh was like, I was going to wild him up real quick. Um, but, you know, in a way watching it now is almost it was kind of interesting because um you know i've 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 talked to you about some certain uh people in my family and their very recent beliefs and i'll go a little more into what happened when we get off uh when we get done recording but watching it and like what josh was saying with the you know get you know it's i get infuriated so much with people like josh that just they're so strong in their belief they can't fathom anyone believing anything different because this is my belief and it's the right belief. That's the key. It's not, it's, it's not a wrong belief anyway. It's the right one. It has to be the right one. And if you don't believe it, well, what the fuck's wrong with you? And those kind of people are just getting annoying me that watching it now, I was able to really like, without having those repeat views go, I really don't like this Howie guy. Like, 
he's our main character, but he's getting on my fucking nerves. Because he just, yeah, he inserts himself so much. He has such this, like, my view is right. Even though he's a stranger on this island, he has come into their territory. They haven't intruded on him. He's intruding on them. And so for me, it was like, yeah, I'm glad. And we talked about it on our own top 10, right, with the endings of film deserve. I'm glad, yeah, it did not get the Hollywood ending because this film deserved that ending. He entered on their territory, and as long as they may be in what they're doing, they gave him warning. They said, hey, you might want to leave, buddy. You might want to get out of here. You know, she gave him the option to sleep with her. Like, hey, fuck me and you're good. And he didn't. He literally had all, it was laid out to him, like, get out while you can. He didn't do it. He just kept insisting, and he he got his, essentially his comeuppance. It is, yeah, it's weird, but yeah, he did. It's, you know, it's, we're supposed to be on his side, but he is arrogant and he's pig-headed and he's insistent. And honestly, I, you know, if I was told, you know, if I, I was in a position where I had to, you know, spend an evening learning about Jesus Christ with Sergeant Howie or dancing around the fire with the pagans, I'm going to choose the pagans every single time. I would much rather hang out with them. Yeah, it's more fun. And even like little scenes, like, we you know, when he gets to the classroom, they talk about how, you know, penises in the classroom and um, what everything, the whole der- deriving and stuff. And he gets so offended. And it's like, in, in a way, you know, this movie, you know, I said like it worked really well when it came out. It's almost oddly timing now, but everything going on with, you know, people and all this crazy stuff and going on. Um, but he gets so offended. He's like, I won't report it. And it's like, well, again, you're a stranger and you weren't even invited to that classroom. So what, who are you to come in there and say what the, the curriculum can and cannot be? Yeah. He points out, you know, he says like, I'm going to report you for teaching filth to children. And she's like, I was not aware that the police had any authority over that education. So who are you reporting me to exactly? And he's like, he just gets this kind of like, and then just kind of walks, wanders off. Yeah, yeah, because he gets challenged and he's not used to being challenged. And that happens to him constantly throughout this. And there are even some really interesting um, symbolic things. Like when he goes to Rowan's desk and he lifts it up and there's that beetle that's just getting dragged around the, the, the nail up until the point where it's just trapped there. Like that's him. Yeah, he's the fucking bug and he's going around in circles until he can't go any farther and he's trapped. But he doesn't he doesn't understand that. He has no idea. And it's that's like some of the genius of this movie is the fact that there is like so many little pieces of symbolism that happen in here. And and they and and they're very overt with other things like when um when he digs up the uh the the supposed grave of Rowan and he finds that hair that's in there. And the teacher is like, I think that's a very beautiful example of transmutation. And for him, that's like a blasphemous thing. It's like, how can you say that that's the that that's Rowan? Like, what are you, what is wrong with you? Like, how can you do that? And he just like so arrogantly and like just like a prick just throws that dead hair right on the right on the floor, right by Lord Summerisle and the teacher. And it's like, damn, dude, like you did. And Lord Summerisle gives no fucks about that thing. He just stands up there and he looks at him and is like, what are you doing, dude? Like, you need to get out of here. Just show him out, please. 
goes back and starts singing his song. I'm just like, he's in total control the entire time. Howie has no idea. And the, the only time he realizes it is when Lord Summer Isle tells him, you're right where I wanted you to be. You came here of your own free will. And so now I'm going to give you something that is befitting of people that believe that believe in your that have your beliefs. He's saying, you know, when he says a martyr's death, the first time I saw that and he said that line, I was like, oh shit, this guy is fucked. <laughs> and I mean, I played it at the beginning, and the only his only reaction to seeing what his fate is is to continually call out for his savior the entire time and him singing that hymn while he's burning was uh woodward's idea really yep that's one of my favorite moments i've ever seen in a horror movie when he's just screaming out a hymn as the fire in, like consumes him yep oh, that was his idea and they, and they and they and they let him go for it and i think it is it is it is one of the most it's sad but it's also one of the most horrific things because this is somebody who is so like so staunch in their beliefs and that he is going to be vindicated in his death that he has no idea what's going to happen but he believes so so completely that he is willing to just sing up until he's dead and it just and then when the movie just like they they slowly like dissolve out to the wicker man just burning and then it topples over and you see that sunset and you're just like, Oh, like <laughs> you've just been dragged through something by the end of it that you weren't expecting because the tone of that movie up until then is like, you know, something's wrong with this. You know, something weird is going to happen. You just don't know what, and you don't know to who. And then when it's finally like the, the, the actual reveal happens, it totally just blows you away. And I think that's why almost 50 years later. So think about that guys in two years will be the 50th anniversary of this movie. This movie still has an impact. And I, and dare I say, it still has some relevant themes in it to this day. Yeah. If, I think it's, you know, we've never really stopped with, you know, religious folks acting like they're better than everybody else trying to force their beliefs upon, you know, policy and just you know their neighbors so this film's going to be like it's going to be relevant forever it's you know be careful what you wish for don't stick your nose where it doesn't belong there's a lot of lessons to be learned from the wicker man you know don't piss off the pagans that's a big one if if a hot door offers sex you know what take a chance buddy (laughs) (laughs) yeah all right that's a good one always say yes (laughs) <laughs> Always say yes. <laughs> Consequences later. That's tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> That's tomorrow's worries. Not not now. But like those like five minutes. There you go. Don't worry. <laughs> oh boy. Um, here are some filmgasm facts for the Wicker Man. Uh, number one. Uh, I already brought this up. Christopher Lee agreed to do, to appear in this movie for free. Pretty cool. Number two, the company's advertising executives were appalled by the movie's ending and wanted screenwriter Anthony Schaefer and director Robin Hardy to reshoot the scene, suggesting a sudden rainstorm, which would douse the wicker man's flames and save Sergeant Howie's life. They refused. 
Thank God. I know I feel like we brought up with like this one and yesterday when we were talking about our, our top tens. But like, God, I hate when the studio sometimes get involved and like, we need a happy ending. I'm like, watch the whole fucking movie and see why that ending was chosen. A lot of times the bleak ending is absolutely the right ending to go with. Very, like, I feel like they always have to fight for the bleak ending. Every movie, they always have to fight for it. And they're always right. Like, well, at this I point, that gets, that gets perpetuated a lot, especially from, especially from Hollywood. And that came about, I'm, I'm not exactly sure when, but a lot of, and I'm sure the, I'm sure the Hayes Code might have had some influence on it. Um, some of the things that somebody like Hitchcock fought against and tried to subvert to is like, in in a movie if you see a male and a female character and they're prominent in it the 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 end result is going to be they're going to be together as a couple that that whole myth is perpetuated and you know the the person you meet within the first 10 minutes of a film is going to be your protagonist and they're going to win the movie against the evil blah 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 and it's it's so frustrating because that does not reflect real life. Even, even if you're trying to tell a story, like that doesn't, that doesn't always mean you're going to have a quality story. And for something like this, I think while it has a lot to say about Christianity as well as paganism and things like that, I don't think it's condemning Christianity or anything like that. I think if, I think if nothing more, it's, it's commenting on it. But it's also commenting on the other side of things as well. Like I don't, I don't think this movie is necessarily picking a side. I think it's showing you both sides of the coin and just letting things play out to their conclusion. Whether or not you agree with it is completely different. But I think the film that we have now, unless something else comes out and we get a different cut of it, here's hoping. Um, this is a this is an incredibly effective movie as it stands yeah i agree and i do love that horror i think more than any other genre fucks with those expected tropes and i like that i like the creativity inherent in this genre uh great stuff well it's like you said horror is the most malleable uh genre it really has the most playing room compared to other genres to just experiment and have a good time with it and see what works ultimately for the story i mean some of the best horror works because they're story first horror second yeah very true uh number three on his off days edward woodward was repeatedly asked if he wanted to go to the spot where the climax was to be shot to see the wicker man structure he declined every time preferring to see it for the first time when the scene was shot so woodward saw the structure for the first time as how he was dragged over the top of the hill Howie's iconic cry of, oh God, oh Jesus Christ, was half Howie, half Woodward. As the cameras were moved around to film the burning scene, Woodward asked director Robin Hardy if he was actually going to be put into the Wicker Man, which Hardy said, yep. As he was carried up to the steps to the structure's midsection by Ian Campbell, Woodward repeatedly told him, don't you drop me, don't you dare drop me. Uh, Campbell laughingly reassuring he wouldn't. Then came the burning scene. Woodward repeatedly said that in his entire career, which spanned over six decades. He was never more scared than when he was inside the Wicker Man as it burned, telling British film critic Mark Kermode in an interview that his terror forced him to, quote, act his socks off. 
So fuck yeah, he, oh, he wanted to. Oh Jesus Christ! <laughs> oh God! Oh Jesus Christ! Yeah, that's his real reaction to seeing the Wicker Man for the first time, as it would be. Yeah, that's where you're gonna burn alive. <laughs> Commitment, acting, I love it. <sighs> that's fantastic. <laughs> I mean, um, it's such a it's such a terrifying thing to see, especially when you realize that you're not the only thing that's going to be in there either. Like you see animals at other spots in it and you just got, you know, the guest of honor spot right there in the middle. Just waiting for you, pal. Oh, so twisted. Like but the it, worst it really- Easter gift ever. <laughs> Happy May Day, Howie. Um, <laughs> Number four, in 1989, screenwriter Anthony Schaefer wrote a 30-page script treatment titled The Loathsome Lambton Worm, which was going to be a direct sequel to this. It would have been more fantastical in subject matter than this movie, relied more heavily on visual effects. It continues immediately after the end of The Wicker Man. Sergeant Howie, whose first name is revealed to be Neil, uh, is rescued from The Wicker Man by a group of police officers from the mainland who show up just in time. Already, I don't care for this. <laughs> um, Howie sets out to bring Lord Summerisle and his pagan followers to justice, but becomes embroiled in a series of challenges which pit the old gods against his own Christian faith. The script culminates in a climactic battle between Howie and a fire-breathing dragon uh, called the Lampton Worm. Ends with a suicidal Howie plunging to his death from a cliff while tied to two large eagles. <laughs> I want to see this movie. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Schaefer's sequel was never produced, but his treatment, complete with illustrations, was eventually published in the companion book Inside the Wicker Man. Director Robin Hardy was not asked to direct the sequel, never read the script. He did not like the idea of Howie surviving the sacrifice or the fact that the actors would have aged by 20 to 30 years between the two movies. <laughs> in 2010, Hardy discussed The Lonesome Lambton Worm, quote, I know Tony did write that, but I don't think anyone particularly liked it or it would have been made. <laughs> I, on one hand, I agree with Hardy. Cheapening the <sighs> sacrifice ruins the impact of the Wicker Man. But also to see how he fight a dragon and fly away with eagles, worth it. Yeah, I must say, look, I've seen some crazy horror films that are just like you wonder how they got made or you know what went through the thought process and that would have been one of them, and I kind of like as much as I would have hated them taking away the Sunday from us. I kind of want to see that sequel. <laughs> I want to see that ending. Yeah, I think they should do it and make it a sequel to the remake. Give it to Nicolas Cage. Yeah, just give it. What if somehow that one's actually good? <laughs> oh God, <laughs> Josh, what do you think of the loathsome Lambton Worm? No thanks. I think anything that takes away from Anything that takes away from this is just not worth it, in my opinion. Like, yeah, it's totally crazy, but I also don't see Howie as being like this brave, gallant warrior type. Like, he ultimately, in the face of true adversity, he crumbles. He crumbles. He doesn't even try to really fight back that much. So I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it that he would that that he would you know all of a sudden find some strength to fight a fucking dragon he would have just fucking pissed his pants and gotten burned alive like he should have they would have erased that ending 
Yeah. It's it's ridiculous. It reminds me of that Gladiator sequel that was pitched when it was like Maximus like fighting his way through hell and then ending up in like the Vietnam War. <laughs> Remember that shit? No, yeah. I never heard. That's fucking terrible. Yeah. Oh my god. And these people get paid thousands of dollars for ideas like that. Are you fucking kidding me? I think that was like one of Minnie's dumb ass ideals I came up with, I should point out. The only reason that movie never happened is because Ridley Scott and Russell Crowe both were like, what the fuck is this? (laughs) But they were like, producers were willing to like, they were ready to put money down. Like this was going to happen in like 2003, 2004. And what the fuck? It's... I don't get it. You know, sometimes, yeah, like Josh said, these people get paid to come up with movies and this is the shit they come up with. So funny enough, there actually was a point in this article where I think it was Schaefer himself saying that it's hard for original ideas to get made. Even then, even then, and this is in the seventies. So think about that. Think about the kinds of movies that were coming out in the seventies. And a lot of them, you know, some based on books and things like that, but they were largely like not like sequels or franchises or whatever. Like it was just an idea that got brought out. And he said, he he said that an original idea is hard to get out there because the people that are putting the money up, they don't want to take a risk. And that still continues to be the case today. However, (laughs) some of the most influential some of the most enjoyable controversial movies that get you talking about something are the ones that for the most part are original ideas i mean you think about a movie like the witch or fuck the lighthouse like i mean yeah those both eggers movies but like those did something they 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 struck a nerve with people you know one was like holy shit this is one of the most terrifying brooding things i've ever seen the other one was a straight up what the fuck did i just watch kind of movie but it got people talking yeah look at hereditary one of the most frightening horror films of the last like maybe ever wholly original idea and yeah it's a kind of it's it's kind of a fucking miracle anything gets made considering all the hoops it has everything has to go through it's got to be just you know everything has to be at a certain moment Somebody's got to be interested in it. Somebody's got to be willing to pay for it. Somebody's got to be willing to make it, star in it. All that shit has to happen all at the same time for a movie to get made. And it it's kind of a miracle every time. Yeah. It is, uh, absolutely. It's just all the more frustrating when it is just like this well-worn track of shit that nobody asks for, but yet they yeah. come out with another Fast and the Furious fucking movie and you're like, come on, seriously. Why are we, why are we still doing this? Why? What point are you trying to make? Except for, we know you're idiots and you'll pay to see this. Yeah. Caleb and I did. We were idiots who paid to see it. <laughs> yes, yes, we did. Hey, we did it's it. your money. You are, you are free to do with you it know. as you please. We have oh, a I, podcast I to cover the current film calendar. We had to see it. I didn't want to well, see it, but we had to see it. Well, I can. I'll. I'll admit, I was excited, but yeah, I got quickly deflated off <laughs> the runtime of F nine, the first saga. Um, I kind of want to take Josh's comment that he just told us about, like hard to get an original idol that from that guy said in the seventies. I almost want to send that to Antelik, <laughs> that dumbass. The guy you that didn't even need it. You didn't even 
have to name drop him. Just anyone in general that thinks that they can be so jaded about stuff that's happening now when they have no desire to do the groundwork or do the legwork and figure out what's come before them. Those are the same people that are arrogant enough to think that they're original and that they have great ideas when they're totally unaware of the fact that a lot of this stuff that's going around, these same stories have been going around for hundreds of years. Chances are, buddy, you're not coming up with a completely original idea. Yeah, Just saying. Like, we as human beings are not that creative. No, and like you said in your quote, back in the 70s, this guy was like, yeah, it's hard to get a studio to finance something original. That was in fucking 73. That's amazing. I <laughs> Fucking crazy. Um, so I don't want to talk about it for a long time, but it does have to come up. The Wicker Man was remade in 2006 with Nicolas Cage and Ellen Burstyn. It's one of the worst remakes of all time. Everyone involved in the first one has distanced themselves from this as far as possible. I have seen it. It's a terrible movie. Moving on. <laughs> I have seen it. We have another show coming out. It will be on that show probably not immediately because we already talked about this one, so I want some separation. Yeah, me too. Uh, yeah. In 2011, Robin Hardy directed The Wicker Tree, which follows two young missionaries as they participate in a festival held in a small Scottish town. Shit goes south. Christopher Lee cameos. The film is critically annihilated. So the Wicker Man stands on its own. You can't, you can't sequelize it. You can't remake it. It is what it is. So I just found, I just found the quote. And let's see. Okay. So just the end of it. Originals are difficult to get done. And I think it is the fault of the people who sell the films and advertise them. Mm-hmm. Always comes down to the fucking money. Yeah. The assholes with the money are the ones that are really controlling things, which is fucking terrible. Like know your place, give the artists the money and the resources and let them do what they do best. Create things. Yeah. I've touched on it with Connor in previous episodes. Like I think the biggest thing, at least for me right now, what I've seen is that like you have a lot of these older producers that just aren't willing to do anything that isn't a surefire like success. And then you, you do have series like a 24 Blumhouse. I know Connor kind of tired of a 24, but you know, you get, they have a lot of younger producers that are a lot more experimental, a lot more risk taking. that are trying to push getting that kind of stuff out into theaters more often. I'll give a 24 credit. They do produce a lot of original content, a lot of unique stories. It just, there's a certain tone, there's a certain flavor that they keep doing with this with these stories that I'm really getting tired of. There is a style. I won't deny that, yeah. And even Blumhouse, you know, like, yeah, they'll do original stuff, but usually they, I'm sure they don't mind doing that risk because they also have their hands deep in some pretty successful established properties that they can be like, yeah, we can take the risk on this little anything we want to do. Yeah, exactly. When you've got, you know, the surefire income coming in, you're more willing to experiment on the side with some, you know, indie stuff just to see what can happen. I yeah, get that. I just, I just wish that like the bigger studios, like, you know, that are still around like universal and Warner, Warner bros would be a little bit more willing to do it every so often. Warner bros. Warner bros. God, what colossal fuck ups they have been in the past few years. But, uh, 
we'll, we'll talk more about that uh, eventually. I think we have some Warner Brothers shit coming. Oh, we um, got some Warner Brothers shit coming up. It is. We still got whatever the fuck to print out for the next couple of months. For sure, Matrix Revolutions are reloaded. Whatever the fuck the new one's called. Resurrections. Resurrections. There we go. <laughs> um, I give The Wicker Man an eight. It's creepy, intriguing, has one of the most unforgiving endings in horror history, and with repeated viewings will probably go up. Always uh, a solid, solid 10 for me. I fucking love this movie so much. It is one of these that is endlessly fascinating to me for all of the things that keep coming up that I don't notice before. And it's just one of those things that no matter what, it, it is a film that continues to have an impact long after the people that have made it have passed on. I mean, the fact that Christopher Lee is so heavily associated with it and it's become just an, such an iconic film, it speaks for itself. Yeah, as uh, someone who, um, you know, like I said, this is my first viewing, seeing it very recently in 28, but that perspective, um, I would give this, uh, you know, I won't give it an eight now, but it's very close to nine. I really found a lot to like in this movie on my first, like, first ever viewing. And I think, like, you know, both of you point out, watch it a few more times. There'll be, I feel like, yeah, there'll be a lot more finding a definite, that's why I say the school could very easily go up, but will probably go up. Um, there's just so much to enjoy in this film on an initial viewing, and it definitely rewards repeat viewings. Yeah, for sure. I love that everyone who tried to bury this movie, everyone who tried to make sure this never happened, fucking failed. And here we are almost 50 years later talking about it still. That's that's magic. That's that's worth throwing a cop in a big wooden effigy and lighting him on fire. Absolutely. <laughs> well said. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, This was a blast. Next week, our cycle is interrupted by a certain British secret agent's long-awaited 25th adventure. No Time to Die comes out next Friday, so we thought it would be fun to revisit Daniel Craig's first 007 adventure, 2006's Casino Royale. So excited. Uh, Maybe my favorite Bond film of all time. Uh, (laughs) Newly minted. I really like the Daniel Craig ones. Yeah, he's great. He was so good. Newly minted double O agent James Bond is sent to Montenegro to participate in a high stakes poker tournament against international terrorist Le Chief and must win the tournament, the tournament to prevent Le Chief from winning millions to use in funding terrorism. It's the film that rejuvenated the Bond franchise, established a new bond for a grittier era. And I cannot wait to talk about it next week. Uh, also, there's a good to fair chance. Uh, I may be doing this one with Oscar Sunday host Austin Johnson. So very psyched about that. Uh, awesome. Don't miss a best picture showdown focused on the French connection on Oscar Sunday and a super awesome double feature of Venom, Let There Be Carnage and the Many Saints of Newark on Monday's sneak preview. Until then, if you're the only Christian on an island full of pagans, maybe keep it to yourself. And while you're at it, keep watching movies. (laughs) 